Paul gives a bit of his heart about these people, and it's amazing to see his heart for them, considering he has not yet met them face to face. We see gospel fruit showing itself in the lives of these people that Paul writes to, and in the life of Paul and the way he speaks. Hear now God's word, Colossians 1, 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the, of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word We thank you for its relevance to us. I pray, Father, that as we look at these brief words still in the introduction of this inspired epistle, that we would see its direct application for our lives, that we might also be able to uh, pray and speak in like manner about one another and for your glory. We thank you for this. Change us in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever thought about what brought you here? We have new members class starting, and it's very interesting to hear all the varying backgrounds of the people that God draws to our church. You could say, to some degree, that we're an association of people who really didn't have a lot in common beforehand. In fact, if you did the demographic study of Johnson County, Redeemer is diverse. Uh, we, we don't fit the exact demographic bill. I love that about this place. I absolutely love that about it. Uh, We're really an association of people that have been drawn by one common thing. I believe it's Jesus. I believe that's why we're here. Even if you don't know it yet, God has you here for a similar reason. He called all of us here. No matter what our backgrounds are, it's about Christ. Really, I think that's a sure sign of gospel grace at work. That's really what is behind the words that Paul speaks here. The sure sign of gospel grace at work is the fact of a loving community created out of nothing that multiplies. And what I mean by created out of nothing, I mean we don't have another association that really brought us together. It's not because you and I like to play golf together or we work together or we like the same sports teams together. That's not what drew us together. It's for Christ. Before we even knew each other's faces, it was for Christ that we come together. This is a sign of gospel grace at work, transcending barriers and boundaries and drawing people together because of Christ who is supreme. I think this fact is clearly demonstrated in the early days of the church especially. When you think about it, the apostles went out and started preaching and living the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace, that being that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that God provides Jesus for the salvation of our souls, for the forgiveness of our sins. That's a simple message. Now the gospel's bigger. It has more impact than just that, but it starts there, that we are commonly sinners saved by God's grace. That's how we're united. And when this message goes out and it is lived before people, new churches start popping out all over the place. And the church starts growing and multiplying it really exponentially in those early years. Uh, Really, in a 40-year period from the time that Jesus ascends all the way to the time of the temple's destruction, the gospel message had been spread to the known Roman world at that time. 
churches by the time the last book of the Bible is written, or at least by the end of the life of the last apostle, John. There are all sorts of churches all over Asia Minor and beyond. All of this comes, I believe, from God's supernatural work, raising up a people united in Christ, even if they had not previously known each other in any special way. Let's look at the text together and see, as Paul introduces again uh, the, the body of this book through this introduction, this kind of funnel into what is to be taught throughout this book. He's going to say some hard things to the Colossians, but he starts by telling them, frankly, how he thanks God for them and how their relationship is unique in Christ. The gospel produces a substantial affection towards others in the body of Christ. We see that in verses 3 through 5. Look there. Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. You sense an affection. Dare I say, you feel an affection that he has for the church, a church that he doesn't even know personally. Verse 4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Faith, hope, and love, again, gathered there together in this opening introduction. We have for us proof that the gospel produces a substantial affection. Let me be clear, substantial affection. That's, it's based on substance that we have affection for each other. Not just emotions, uh, not just some other loose, temporal, superficial reason why we have affection for each other, but a substance that brings us together to love one another. This is what the gospel produces, a substantial affection towards others. And the substance, ultimately, is the gift that God gives us in Christ that draws us together. But look at how this plays out in the very prayer, the very practice that Paul has towards the church, towards other brothers and sisters. Verse 3, we see evidenced that Paul had the habit of, dare I say, the discipline of regular prayer for each other, for the church. Look at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Paul says he thanks God for the Colossian believers when we pray for you. He doesn't say we'll try to remember you in prayer or if we think of it, we'll pray for you. Instead, the clear implication here by these words is that Paul has regular times of prayer before the Lord on behalf of the saints. He's come in contact with and those who he knows about through people who have come back and shared with him. In this case, Epaphras, who shares the gospel in Colossae, a church by God's sovereign supernatural power emerges. And Paul hears of this, no doubt about person, people in the church from Epaphras, and he writes them in this personal, substantive way that has affection. And he starts by saying, when we pray for you, we always give thanks. In other words, we regularly lift you before the throne. This is part of their discipline, their practice. Now, I want to challenge everyone at this church to be about particular prayer for one another that's scheduled, that's regular. Uh, Whatever it is for your family time that you would pray for others in the church. It could start as simple as having a card with a covenant child on their their face on uh, this card and on your refrigerator like we've had for years since we've been here. And we have three three children on our refrigerator. They happen to be children that one of our our children kind of uh, hang out with or know, and it reminds us to pray for them as we see their faces. Uh, But also, if you're not coming Sunday night, you're missing out. No guilt trip here at all. Uh, Seriously, because if you're you're grumpy about coming Sunday, don't come Sunday night. Because we don't want to be grumpy. But I'm just saying to you that every Sunday night, in a more informal way than we do on Sunday morning, we keep a prayer log. And my esteemed, uh, what do we call him? Scribe, Malcolm. 
He's esteemed. That's the key. Fills out this prayer log when people give their requests. And over the years, we have kept these. This is actually not even, I don't know how long this is. This isn't, it looks like October. Maybe this is just a year. And uh, it goes through all the prayers that he writes down, everyone with their name. And then we pray in a general way for them, but it's also for the purpose of just letting everybody know how to pray for the saints here gathered in this body. And so when you go away from it, I know it works for us in that throughout the week, we remember what people say on Sunday night. And as Sherry and I are praying, or we are praying with the children, or we're praying individually, it just comes to mind. You come to our mind. When someone's in the hospital or something is coming up, and I know someone's thinking about or they're going to take a trip. It just comes to our mind because we have a formal way of saying it to each other, and then it comes to our mind in regularity. I would say to you that that's a natural outworking, a natural fruit of the gospel in a community, that you start praying for one another in a regular way because you love each other with a substance that is Christ. That's what we have in the words of Paul, simply saying, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. This is not Paul just saying something trite just to kind of, oh, I've been praying for you, and then walk off. I mean, he has too many witnesses. People know what he does. And for him to say, I always pray for you, or I always thank God when I pray for you, indicates that someone could verify that. He's just not, not just blowing smoke out there. He's telling the truth that he regularly prays for these people. Regular, disciplined prayer for each other. Specifically, a prayer sheet you might keep, uh, a, a little one of those recipe boxes with three-by-five cards and missionaries' names on them and people in the church's names on them. Something that has you regularly lifting up people in your church, in your body, and outside of this body as well. The gospel produces a substantial affection towards each other in the body of Christ. It's shown and nurtured by prayer. But also notice the demeanor of that prayer or the stature of the prayer. This will help you immensely as you lift up other people to the Lord. Look at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, when we pray for you. When we pray for you denotes the regularity. We always thank God shows the demeanor or the stature or the mindset we have when we lift other people up. We do so with thanks. And I would submit to you that this gives us much revelation. One just very honest fact is that we're called together as a body of diverse believers. You will not get along with everybody right off the bat. You may have trouble liking each other at times. That's part of being in a family, a sinful family. But as you give thanks to God for those people, for each other, there will grow in you an affection that is hard to understand. Just like you love your brother or your sister, even if they sometimes do things to bother you. As a family, if we would lift each other up, not just for the thing we're asking for, but thank God for that person and what God has done in their life, that will change your demeanor towards the person as well. I want you to consider this further. Why is Paul thankful for these people? Verse 4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. There are two substantive reasons why he's thanking God for these people when he prays. Because of their faith in Christ and, on equal level, the love that they show for all the saints. So they trust Christ and show love. These things go together. You can't separate them. But consider for a moment what he's really saying, in essence. He's not saying, please hear this, he is not saying, since we heard how you have trusted in Jesus... You have decided to accept him as your savior. Now we're thanking God for you doing that. That's not what he's saying. We know this because the definition of faith in the New Testament, especially as Paul teaches, is something God gives someone. It's a gift. So what he's really saying when he thanks God for their faith in Christ is what? Thank you, God, for giving them faith. 
for working supernaturally in their life. And that supernatural activity in their life doesn't stop there. It spreads the love for the saints. That's what he's saying. Don't misunderstand this. He's not thanking God that they prayed the prayer or that they came forward in that, in that rally. That's not what, what he's saying. I thank God for the faith you have in Christ, knowing full well that faith is a gift of God. How do we know this? He says it explicitly in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Remember what Paul writes to the Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So how have you been saved? By grace through faith. That's the construct. And this is not your own doing. What is this? Being saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So he is not now turning to the Colossians and saying, I commend you for the faith that you have drummed up or the faith you have mustered or you have exercised. That would be boasting upon man. He's saying, I thank God for the faith you have in Christ because God gave it to you. It's supernatural. That's why I have a substantive affection for you because I see what God has done for you. He did the same thing for me and it has nothing to do with me. He did it. Supernaturally, we're bound together this way. Paul exhibits this in these simple verses that we might be tempted just to look over. But this is scripture. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ. And please notice, inextricably linked and of the love that you have for all the saints. Paul, when praying for the saints, doesn't praise them for their faith, but rather thanks God for what he's doing in their lives. And it's manifested in the fact that they now love each other and of the love you have for all the saints. Paul sees the special supernatural love and affection these believers have for one another and thanks God for it. I would suggest to you, and please hear me, I would suggest to you that unless we are loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, no one will know we truly have faith in Christ if we really have it. I'll say it again. I would suggest to you that unless we are loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, no one will know we truly have faith in Christ. If Paul had gotten word back that there were backbiting, divisions, gossip, slander, fighting each other, do you think he would have paid any attention to a profession? No, it's because they profess faith in Christ, something God gives, and they had love for the saints, that he gives thanks to God for this. There are many walking around that say words and have no, no marriage whatsoever between words and deeds in their life. This is maybe the plague of the church. Why the gospel isn't as effective? When we are not living it, we call into question the authenticity of the claim itself. And here, he commends this group, this church, and I hope we could be commended for this, that we would not just proclaim the message of forgiveness of sins in Christ, but that we would then live reconciled lives with one another. You see, if we profess with our lips that we trust in Christ, we believe the gospel, what are we saying? We believe we're at war with God and that God has brought peace by bringing Jesus. And now we're no longer wrestling with God because we're at peace with him. But if we refuse to be at peace with others, to love one another, we're basically saying we doubt the, the gospel itself. It's that serious. It's not okay to be unloving towards one another. This is so important. It comes up over and over in Paul's writing in the New Testament, in the whole Bible. Jesus says in John 13 that they will know you by the love you have for one another. Then when he prays for the church in John 17, listen to what the desire of our Savior is for the church. I do not ask for these only, talking about the disciples, but also for those who would believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, he prays for. Notice he didn't pray for a successful program, a big building, uh, all sorts of numbers, uh, exposure, cultural acceptance. That's not what he prays for his people. 
that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. You see, the way the world knows Christ is when the church acts like Christ, which is loving one another. That's the best way to proclaim Christ. There are many other ways, but the starting point has got to be here in a transformed culture and community called communion in Christ. Union with Christ and union with each other. He says in John 17 and praying, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That's the church. That they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. That's the first step in sharing the gospel with the world and seeing gospel fruit is that the gospel would have its effect in our relationships so that we would truly love one another and the world sees this and it sees Christ. In our regular prayers for one another, as I alluded to earlier, let's start, try this, start by praising God for others as you pray for them. I mean, literally praise God for what you're doing in what he's doing in their lives. I mean, literally, Lord, thank you for what you're doing in Nathan's life. Specifically, Lord, thank you for giving Martha such a sensitive spirit towards those who suffer. Thank you, Lord, for giving Mary a heart to serve you and your church. Thank you, Lord, for giving, and and fill in the blank, thank God for what he's doing in that person's life. Bring glory to God for what he's doing in other people's lives as you pray for them. Your affections will change towards your brothers and sisters and towards God for what he's doing. Let's not relegate our prayers for simply asking for things, but rather thanking God for people and what he does in their lives. The gospel produces a substantial affection towards others in the body of Christ. This is nurtured and bolstered by prayer. But let us not forget also that we are, we are a part now of a body, the body of Christ, that has an eternal relationship now. It's not just fleeting. It's not going to be for a little while and gone. It's forever we're called together. Our affection for one another is based on our eternal relationship with each other in Christ. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. And of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before the world, the word of truth, the gospel. In other words, be mindful of the fact that there is an eternal reality to our lives. It's not saying by any means, I want to stress this, that we just stop and live looking you know, glory by and by. It's saying that you will spend the rest of your eternity together. So start living now in that light, of that, in the light of that reality. We will spend our lives together, our existence together. That's our great hope that we will for, live forever in Christ, but we'll also live in Christ with each other. We will not be these fat, chubby angels that shoot bows and arrows. I'm sick of being chubby. I don't mind shooting the bows and arrows. But that's not what our eternal existence will be, brothers and sisters. You're going to have a body. You're going to have a soul. We'll be on a new or recreated earth. We're going to live like it was supposed to be before the fall. That's what eternity will be. I can't tell you much more about it, but I know that much is true. And so we'll live together forever that way. Start now is the point. Let's start now and see how the gospel has its effect on us in our fallen state to transform and reform our relationships. You know, when I married my wife, I distinctly remember it was this realization or when when I decided or the Lord decided for me in my heart that she was the one I want to spend my life with. I knew there's no way of all the things we would go through, we would never get bored together. I promise you she will agree with that. Our, we, don't, we, we love our lives together, even the struggles, because there's a complexity about the way God has made both of us. That I, That's the joy of it. I, I, 
I'm sure I could fill all my earthly days and never come to the end of knowing her fully, and there will always be new and exciting things that happen. It's just the way it is. There's a sense in which I would like us to think in terms of the church, those around us, even if you get transferred or we're not spending every temporal moment with each other on this earth, that you are here together with your brothers and sisters who are going to be with you forever in eternity, starting now with that kind of outlook as God transforms us more and more to the image of Christ. Note that the prospect of eternity with each other is not meant to be some far-off reality, though. It's to be experienced now. As Christians... Our relationship transcends the very assortments of superficial things that keep us together. We are united together by God's grace, grace through Christ. That's a privileged, eternal relationship. And our union, please hear, is not because of these things. Our union is not because we are employed by the same company. Our union together here today is not because we live in the same subdivision or town or zip code or that we're in the same profession, have the same likes and dislikes, the same favorite sports teams. Our union together today is not because we're in the same socioeconomic class or because we have the same cars or the same hobbies or our kids play in the same sports teams together. Our union together today is not because we are the same race or ethnicity. Our union together, the only one of any substance, is that we're united by faith to Christ. That is the only union that matters. That's the union that brings us together and I hope transcends all cultural philosophical, any kind of barrier you can imagine that isn't based on the truth, it should transcend. You know, Paul reflects this fruit of the gospel in verses 3 to 5, but in verses 6 to 8, as we look there, in the same introduction, we see an exciting multiplication of gospel fruit that happened here and still happens today. I submit to you, as the scripture says, a community that boldly proclaims and embraces Christ as Lord, then proves it by its love for one another, is one, that's one of the many ways, if not the chief way, that God will grow that church, multiply that church. Gospel, the gospel produces fruit that multiplies. Look at verse 6 through 8. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, the message of the forgiveness of sins in Christ, which has come to you and indeed is in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. The fruit of the gospel will multiply by divine design. Whenever and wherever the gospel is preached in word and deed, there will be multiplication. The growth plan for God's church is proclamation of the gospel in word and deed. If I could ever get asked, and no one ever asked me this, to write a book on church growth, it'd be a page long. Preach the gospel and live the gospel. Now, People say, well, what kind of, you know, they think growth only means, you know, exponential 10,000 people. Into, that's not, God's monitor on what growth is is not the same as ours. I think growth happens in a couple ways, brothers and sisters. I think, yes, it's true. People have never heard the gospel. God saves by his spirit and brings into the church or through the ministry of the church brings them in. That's true. But notice what the text says. The day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. I would submit to you that many people who attend churches today do not understand the grace of God. They're in church and they think they're Christians, but they don't know what grace is. Grace to them, to many well-meaning people, means I do this and then God will save me. That's not grace. That's not even Christian. God saves and then I live in response to salvation. That's grace. I think people need to hear that as much as people who've never heard anything need to hear something. It's that, it's that pointed 
when we hear this. So I don't freak out at all if our growth numbers aren't in line with the rest of uh, this county or this state or this country. What I want to know is, are people coming to an understanding of God's grace in Christ? And if two people every year come to that, I'm pumped for God's glory. It will produce. It will multiply. It just does. That's its divine design. You know what? It happens both locally and abroad. Please notice with me in this text in verse 6 and verse 7. Because the hope is laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before it in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. That means particularly individually as a church. That word has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. So now you have it in a broad application. Locally it comes and grows. Broadly or worldwide it comes and it grows. As it does also among you. So it's saying that will come locally and as it's preached and lived out, it will multiply there in a local way, in a local congregation, in among congregations, among a town, a city. But it will also go forth as Epaphras went back to Colossae, preached the gospel, and the church started growing. That's how it happens also. We go somewhere else and preach the gospel, and it grows there. And the nature of it is that it bears fruit and is growing. Notice what it, how it says it's present tense, it's bearing fruit and growing, present and future. It's a given, it's part of design, that gospel fruit will multiply both locally and abroad. Look at it locally. It's come to you. Gospel fruit should be growing at Redeemer. We should be a veritable garden of gospel fruit. We should be a healthy tomato garden of gospel fruit. And the the reason why I use this image is because any serious tomato farmer, not that any of you who would actually allow someone at a restaurant to put tomatoes on anything you have, those are not tomatoes, what they have there. Those are something painted orange, and they're not tomatoes. But if you have ever grown a tomato garden and gotten into it, you will realize that there are different years that different outcomes happen. This was not a great year. Uh, Basically, the heat kind of froze the growth, and they stayed on the vine, and all of a sudden, they all got red at once, and for three days, we're making sauce. Now, I'm not complaining. we got half a freezer full of sauce. However, the better growth pattern would be that they start coming early in June, and then you start having them throughout, and new tomatoes show up throughout the year, and even now, you're still able to pick a tomato. Growth that's maybe slower up front, but steadier over time and continually reproducing constantly multiplying, living a long time into this. That is exactly what I pray almost daily for that God is doing at this church. That he's building a place that will long outlast us, that fruit will come in his time as it goes, and it will be consistent in the future. Not a quick blow up in red, and, but rather slowly but surely growing us. Not always numerically either. I mean in depth and in, in, in wisdom and growing us, and then so that when our grandchildren, uh, our great-grandchildren drive by the property someday, say they're out of state and they come back, I know about the history of that church. They started out out there, and they bought 10 acres from this family that retired out here, and they're worshiping that house that used to be there that's mowed down now. And where that baseball diamond is, that's where that building started. That's where that church started. And I remember my great-great-grandfather talking about a guy who was just completely enamored with the pews that they would put in the new sanctuary. <laughs> What's that guy's name again? I remember, but it's amazing. And look at this cornerstone. It says, Sola Dea Gloria. And there's going to be a, a direct connection with what was then and what is now and what is in the future because gospel fruit, when we're faithful to it, continues to multiply and we need not freak out every time a new fad comes by and people tell us, you're just doing it wrong, you dinosaurs. You've got to do it. You've got to get rid of that hymnal. Just keep 
I'm not saying it's the gospel. I'm just saying that it represents a commitment to something that we think transcends just this age. Because we want to see it transcend to the next age and the next. Local multiplication. But there's a second uh, multiplication also alluded to here, and that's the broader multiplication, which I'm extremely excited about. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, and indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. No matter what your particular take about the specifics of the end times, one has to agree the Bible is very optimistic about the growth of the church, no matter what it looks like. Uh, There is nowhere ever anywhere in the New Testament or Old Testament you will ever find God speaking of the growth of his church as being anything other than multiplying. He never speaks in another way. He never says uh, it's going to be really tough for you and you will not grow, you will not multiply, and you will get pounded for a long time, have no effect on any culture whatsoever, and then, uh, then I'll come back doesn't say that. It's not there anywhere. In fact, as you look at the words uh, of the gospel here in a simple form, in the persecuted Roman Empire, the gospel is growing. In the whole world, it's bearing fruit and it's growing. It's actually growing. Just as you've learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant, who came. Think about the changing face of Christianity, even in our own time. I'm amazed at this study. I've read literally dozens, if not a hundred studies, on just how Christianity is affecting the world today. Frankly, I get depressed sometimes when I look at Western culture just because of the overall decline of our culture. Uh, But we've got to recognize that there is actually a shift going on, a paradigm shift in Christianity away from Western culture in towards Asia and Africa. And uh, our ethnocentricity, that might bother us. You know, we're America. Listen, the Lord used us in a major way and sent those missionaries to those places. Still think there's great hope for Western culture in Christ as the church is faithful. But in a macro sense, in a broad sense of the multiplication, There's a clear shift happening now away from the West and towards those places uh, like Africa and Asia in particular. I want you to consider some of the numbers where the growth is developed. 560 million uh, people live in Europe that profess the name of Christ. 260 in North America, total of 820 million right now if you're to do a survey. And of course, you and I will have the same reaction when you hear that 820 million people in the Western uh, portion of the world trust or profess Christ, you're probably like me and saying, yeah, but do they really trust Christ? I agree. That's a, that's, an, that's a fair assessment or a fair question. But think about this now. The combined number of Christians in Latin America, 480 million, 360 million in Africa, 313 million in Asia is 1.15 billion. And these are the lowest numbers I could find just so as not to exaggerate, okay? So you have Asia and Africa with at least 670 million right now professing. I would just say to you, in Asia in particular, a majority of these come from China and reports out of China. Now, I don't know for sure the authenticity of anyone's profession. It's just that when you look at the Asian profession of faith, and you're talking India as well now, partially as well, you've got people that have no social advantage to claim Christ. They have no, uh, they have no political reason to proclaim Christ. In fact, everything goes against the reason for them to proclaim Christ. That gives me great confidence that genuine Christianity is growing in a way we've never seen before. And even though it's tough to see our Western culture in decline, recognize the macro plan of God is continuing to build his church and to grow it. No matter what else happens in society, whatever the newspaper says, it's growing. It's growing at a great rate. It's incredible to me. In communist China, in the face of sometimes terrifying government opposition, people are committing themselves to a spiritual relationship with Christ, one author says, at the rate of averaging about 28,000 new converts a day. A staggering 80 million Chinese are committed to Christians. That's the middle number for what people predict. 
Some researchers put the figure closer to 800 million. In Africa, the number who follow Christ has risen from 3% in 1900 to a present figure of 45%. And what's interesting about this is that what was started as English and American church plants in Africa are now are holding the line to gospel truth and sending missionaries back to America and back to Europe so that they would come back to Christ. So I believe what Paul says here still means it today. It's building and multiplying. I'm excited about our involvement, even in a small level as a church, that we would be involved in other places in the world to see what God's doing. I look forward to our first missions conference in just six, seven weeks from now. I hope you are as excited as I am about what God is doing abroad. I think the shift in Christianity's heart will have an enormous effect on the faith for our children and our grandchildren, as well as geopolitical affairs in this world, you can imagine. But I am so optimistic. The reason why I'm so simply optimistic comes from this text, among others. Verse 8. This movement I'm talking about is empowered by the Spirit of God. As has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Three simple words. In the Spirit. This thing that is happening, Paul says, is in the Spirit. From the Spirit by the Spirit. It's God working in the world by His Spirit. You know, the success of my tomato garden is largely dependent on me doing the right things at the right times. The multiplication of gospel fruit, however, is empowered by one thing. God by His Spirit. That's why I have great confidence. Then when I read the Scripture, I have to tell you, my optimism comes not from a commitment to any particular end times view. It really isn't. It's reading the victory that is so clear in The biblical language. The psalmist. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. God says to the psalmist. Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Psalm 47. The nobles of the nations assemble as peoples of of God, the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Psalm 72, all kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him. The kind of exegetical gymnastics you have to do to make this say anything other than the victory of God over all are just so far out of biblical proportion. It continues. In Daniel, this vision of the future, the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel 2, 44, it will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Isaiah, in a passage every one of us knows by heart, but think of in a new light, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Isaiah 11, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 66, all mankind will come and bow down before me. I'm not telling you to know the timetable. I just see the progress that's laid out for us when Paul says, The gospel has come and is building and is growing. He doesn't say, but it's going to peter out at some point. It's building and it's growing. This is what is behind the words of our Savior when he says to Peter and company, I will build my church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And this is why the revelator, John, when he sees this vision, No matter what your particular interpretation is, we see the holistic application of the gospel in Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. What a picture of what God is doing, is going to do. Back to you, in your house, in your time right now. Every little thing you do matters. Every little bit of community building effort you take is part of sharing the gospel of grace, no matter how mundane that activity is. We are a small part of a big thing God is doing. So don't think of anything you do anymore without excitement about the fact it's part of God's big picture. Even the struggles you go through now, how God manifests himself through you to others. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these words of introduction in this epistle. Lord, we can hardly wait to get to the body, the meat of all that's being said. But Lord, we don't want to overlook just not even one word. I pray, God, that we would be transformed by what we learn as we study your word. And I pray that we would go forth from this place seeing immediate relevance to how we love one another, thank you for each other, pray for one another, all because of the faith you have given us and the love you've given us for each other that is of you, it's not of our, ourselves. And Lord, as we focus on that here personally, that we would also lift our eyes up and see what you're doing in the world and be a part of it as much as we possibly can, Lord, by your grace. Thank you for this body of believers. What a wonderful body it is. I thank you for melting us together from all sorts of backgrounds. Lord, I pray that we would be part of something that's a movement, not just a monument. Something that will move into the future generations that our children's children and children's children will look back and see this place and know what happened here and what is continuing to happen in their day. Lord, we, this can only happen of you. And we want you to receive all the glory for it. In Christ's name, amen. Let's sing just a wonderful song of victory. Uh, one of great missionary uh, hymns, as it's called. 369, let's stand together and sing verses 1 through 3 as the elders come to prepare the table. Shout for the blessed Jesus reigns. You may be seated.
it's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his table. It's the Lord's Supper because the Lord is present here and now in a real spiritual way in the sacraments. We are reminded week after week that Christ is the reason that we come together, that we're here today, and he's the one that unites us. He's given us the sacraments as sensible signs and seals of the covenant of grace, of his real spiritual presence with us, so that we can taste and touch and see that the Lord is good and that he's here and he's in our midst. And so I'd welcome all of you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you're trusting in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins to come and partake and to be refreshed and renewed in the faith that he's given you. If you feel like there is something you're adding to the equation, if there's something you bring to the table to be right with God, uh, let the bread and the cup pass. It's not about your works, your status, your ability to perform. It's solely about God's grace and the death of Christ Jesus for sin. If there's some broken relationship that you need to go and make right, go make that right. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. So seek to live the gospel of peace in our relationships and then come back to this table. But the main point is that we are trusting Christ and that he alone is our hope for salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this sign and seal of the covenant of grace, the sacrament that you have given to us to show us and to display to us to convince us again of your presence with us, your work in us, and the hope that we have of your plan for us. Lord, set apart these elements from their common use to the sacred use for which you've had them this morning, for the building up of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. The elders will come and distribute the bread. We'd ask that you partake of it when you receive it, symbolizing our personal response to the gospel. They'll then distribute the cup and ask that we would all hold. And we will partake of that together, symbolizing our union in the blood of Jesus Christ.